So, um, so today we're talking about foundations, and we're going to talk about the foundations of sex, gender, and marriage, because I get really excited about light topics <clears throat> without controversy, where they all end with generous understanding and joyous resolution. Now, I'm going to start where we really are in this subject with sex, gender, marriage. <clears throat> Those terms are all hotly debated. Let me get my water. <clears throat> Thank you, ma'am. So they're all hotly debated um, as terms and then the content. And because words matter, it's difficult to communicate with one another as humans when the terms that we use are, um, are tied to things like policies and power. And, and, and when definitions are in flux, it's, it's nothing wrong with definitions of words being in flux, but when they're also filled with all these power categories and policies and controls and non-controls and all this other stuff, it just becomes very difficult. A huge swath of our culture uses the term sex or biological sex, and the term gender as synonyms. A huge swath of our culture uses sex, the term sex and gender, as completely separate categories. And then a good group of people use them as a Venn diagram with some overlap in them. But that makes it really hard to have conversations sometimes. Then you add words like marriage or male, uh, man, masculine, woman, female, feminine, and, or, and sprinkle in some words like roles, identity, and the stew starts to heat up a bit. Then you add terms like cis or trans, non-binary, two-spirit, phobic, normative, affirming, and dead naming, and this, this cauldron gets really hot. It's hard to, to, to make your way through this cauldron. Because these words are terms that people, um, they vilify in rejection or they, they, they cherish them as expression. The use and misuse and misunderstanding and weaponizing of terms like this by all sides have people, bearers of the image of God, from all sides of the issue, feeling angry, lonely, misunderstood, threatened, offended, and outraged. And I'm not just talking about, you know, social media and internet grifters and pundits and zealots, shock jocks. I'm talking about us in our homes with our friends and family and loved ones. It is just hard to have these conversations. The people of this country that we live in have shown an inability to have charitable, curious, truthful, loving, and just and humble conversations. And Christ followers, sojourning in this country, have not only been syncretized with the viciousness and lovelessness of our culture, many of our leaders have led in the malice. In the name of Jesus, looking nothing like Jesus. So let me set some expectations. I will tell you how Genesis 
speaks about the foundations of biological sex. I put in quotes gender because that term is not used. And marriage. But I will not enter into the diatribes. I will not give fuel to fires burning down families and institutions all across this land. I will be nuanced. And some of what, you, what I say you might find lacking. But I'm not just okay with this. I actually believe is what we need in our formation of who Christ is shaping us to be as his followers, those who take on his name. I will be clear about how Genesis informs the, these terms and topics that we use, but the debates about how society should handle them or how a Christian in society should handle them, I'm not really going to touch. No sermon or conference or seminar can handle the tributaries that flow from the river of these discussions. His word, abiding in him with other people, both brothers and neighbors, that's how we find wisdom over time with these topics. So you've got to remember, back from a few weeks ago, who hears these first words from Genesis that say, in the beginning, and then say, male and female, he created them. Remember, <clears throat> they are these freed slaves who were rescued from the most powerful empire the world knew. And they were miraculously rescued by the liberating power and love of God. And then they enter this desert, which they didn't know it when they first heard these words, but going to be there for 40 years. They are haggard and homeless. And in comparison, in, in a kind of, um, I don't know, relative worldly way of looking at it, they were powerless and, and, and to, to the cultural and religious institutions of their day. The, race, the nations around them actually had a broader view of sexuality and gender and marriage than they did, especially Egypt and Mesopotamia, but not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament too. In Jesus' time, sexuality, gender, and, and marriage were both weirdly in, in Roman culture, both very fluid and very static depending on your income bracket. <clears throat> this is just a historical fact, but I say it to you because I want you to be encouraged. This is not a new thing for the church have to live through and be a part of. They're kind of normal for us. We have always been a kind of outward, awkward outlier living in a compromised relationship with the cultural norms in our host countries. And sometimes those have been very strict host countries that had uh, an oppressive, and sometimes they've been more lax. We always have to navigate our relationship to the state, to uh, the culture at be. We just have to, whether it's stringent or permissive. But what I want you to experience today is that these words from Genesis are given to you in love for you. Not just for them, whoever the them is in your mind. They're given to you. Let's be really clear about the text. All of Genesis 1 and 2 have a clarion theme. That God designed us and all that's in it. And the world and all that's in it. He formed and filled the earth. And specifically, when it comes to human beings, he created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. Christians are people who believe God has a beautiful design method. 
that compatible, compatible, sometimes compatible, compatible companions have a creative power with one another. Two, becoming one to multiply the good work of being human. And not just for humans, it's all over the place in the first two chapters. He made animals and plants and humans with unity and distinction. But it was that distinction that had that kind of creative power. Back to the sermon on on, uh, the Trinity. Distinct persons, one God. So almost all of creation has a kind of um, uh, compatibility in it. Light and dark, land and sea, seed and egg, male and female. Difference in unity. And so is true with male and female. He created them. This is why chapter 2 starts off, the Lord said, there wasn't a good fit for the man. It's not good for him to be alone. I'm going to find a helper for him. There was no one fit to help Adam use his creative power of filling and loving the earth with more image bearers. And at this point, this is just a biological reality. But sometimes you can read it and you're like, oh, well, God made a mistake. And he's like, oh, dang it. Oh, I forgot that part. No, it's actually just setting up the beauty of the story. Because it wasn't a mistake. He's trying to show off his design. That's why verse 21 says that he caused him to sleep, took from his rib, closed it up, and and, um, made a woman from that rib. And then he brought her to the man. And here's where the, the, the hot point is. And it's awesome. Adam looks at her. And what God formed, and he's like, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You shall be called Ish, woman, Isha, woman, because I am Ish, man. Full of beauty and excitement, Adam's like looking at her and her body, and he is overjoyed. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. He's celebrating their oneness and their distinction. So this is how Genesis informs our uses of the term sex or biological sex. This is kind of the definition, biblically speaking, of sex or biological sex. Which has in it um, the place for where that union, that one fleshness happens. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is this description of marriage. From a biblical perspective, marriage is holding fast to that one another as biologically and spiritually compatible so that they would become one. And marriage is the place where there is a covenant, a promise made towards that one flesh relationship. It's not the only way males and females relate. In fact, not at all the only way. But it is this one place where these biological differences can be expressive physically and sexually so they can recreate, they can procreate. Distinct, compatible in body, spirit to bear his image by making more image bearers. And sometimes this leads a man and a woman to put a life, to to commit to a life together And that is called marriage in the scripture. So what about gender? This is of the hardest of terms because um, it's a relatively new English word. Not brand new, but in terms of use. Because I did the Google search where, you know, you can find out, y'all done this before? It tells you the use over years. 
1940s when it took the first hit up. 1980s, it was pretty high. Now, it's not, it's even higher. It kind of goes just like this from 1940. But now also those terms are, in, are debatable and are, are in flux in terms of definition. You can't find the term gender in an English Bible. You can find the term gender, but it means engendered. You know, like, engendered. Anyway, you didn't even know that. But to say that the term gender doesn't exist in the Bible is not to say that the concepts that we use when we use the term gender are not part of the Scripture. They are. This Bible certainly describes some distinctions between men and women that are more than biological. It just does. How much more is sometimes hard to tease out, y'all. The Bible is written to real people across many cultures and languages and influences. Um, Each ancient Near Eastern era has its own social constructs, and sometimes it's hard to figure out which part of the Bible is speaking to to, uh, an incarnate people, a group of people that are, are, are live in the world and their cultural norms and what is essential or permanent or universal. It's just hard sometimes. So what I want to say is when you're talking about gender in the scriptures, you're having those conversations. Proceed with caution and curiosity and love. Informed by the scriptures. But be careful. That's pretty much what the scripture talks about in terms of gender, sex, and marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 has a lot more to say about all of this because we're not just setting kind of a foundation for, for this. But here's the problem. Genesis 3 happens. And Genesis 3 is called the fall where everything gets a little bit messed up, by which I mean a lot. This is the place in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve first see their bodies with shame. And forever, we will struggle with seeing the way God made our bodies with some sort of shame until that great day. They literally covered themselves and hid And Scripture is such a realistic book about this stuff. It does not shy away about the many broken ways and cruel ways that our world has dealt with issues of sex, gender, and marriage. It just just tells it like it is. There are some really horrible stories in the Bible about these topics. A couple really strange things from heroes of the faith. And then God after chapter 3, living on this side of chapter 3, had some other kinds of rules and agreements and allowing allowances that don't sound like the Genesis 1-2 part at times. The polygamy was, was rampant, even if it was clearly not ideal. Then there was this, you know, this kinsman redeemer thing? <laughs> yeah. The kinsman redeemer is if, you know, I had a brother and my brother's, um, my brother dies, I'm supposed to marry his wife, even if I'm married. There are all sorts of like social, um, social security stuff that's going on in that. And it doesn't always describe what that marriage was like or did it have any kind of differences to, but it doesn't sound like Genesis 1 and 2. 
that it's still beautiful. The divorce laws get wonky in the Old Testament. Jesus clarifies in the front. It doesn't work exactly the same way. I am not saying that means that everything in Genesis 1 and 2 is relative. I'm saying that that beautiful design that God has given us gets really jacked up after Genesis 3. That's what I'm saying. So the scripture actually also deals with us in a broken world as broken people. What we do with these norms from Genesis 1 and 2, what we need is God's grace to figure out what to do and wisdom and patience and kindness, his truth before us. Because it isn't easy. I'm pretty sure that, that, you know, Genesis wasn't given to the ragtag nomads of Israel so that they could, they could go and change Egyptian and Mesopotamian law. Oh, you guys, the grace that we have in this is that it's been a gift to us to have, to know the beauty of his design and creation, and we're to lean into that beauty with joy and majesty and fighting off the shame that we have in our mirrors and, 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 and towards other people and ourselves, that we embrace the distinctions and the oneness of the sexes and wonder at the really kind of odd way procreation happens. But I don't want you to put first your eyes on the cultural moment. Let your eyes be delighted by God's design. It's there to ponder and to cherish and to relish in. Look, we live in a pluralistic society. I truly don't know the answer to the question of what the social and political ramifications would be for us. But I do know that you're only getting anywhere good if we embrace it as a community. It's a delightful gift from God. And let me speak to the other place we need grace. Because we do live on this side of Genesis 3. Friends, the pressures to get this stuff right, the relationships at stake on what can be experienced as a new language and playing field for our kids to get it right, whatever the right is. It's too much. You will not make it through unscathed. And for those of you who've experienced the crushing weight of oppressive gender roles, someone made you feel not masculine enough, not feminine enough, I'm just sorry. I'm sorry. And if it was from someone like me who tries to bring the Bible to bear to his people, I'm even more sorry. People, even believers, can weaponize some cultural norms and name it as if it were straight from the scripture. And if you are a person who's confused or feels trapped or has a unsure relationship with your body and it's in your heart and it's in your mind it's in your body i want you to know you are not alone you're just not if everybody in this room would be honest they would tell you that all of them struggle with awkwardness insecurity about the topics of sex gender and marriage and if they wouldn't they're not telling you the truth We need to find people that we can talk to with courage and safety 
God loves you. He made you. He loves your body. We all feel awkward and shame in our bodies. It's okay. That's why he's here. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that in these topics, that we collapse upon our Lord Jesus who loves us, who's redeemed us by his body, with his body. Which is kind of ironic if you think about it, since he was kind of a, a, he was a kind of long-haired man who never married. And when Paul describes how, what happens when people come to him, we come to him and in him there is no male or female. There's other things the Bible says that talks about other ways of looking at it. But it is kind of a quirky, ironic reality. And then, because the Bible doesn't end just after Genesis 3, but talks about this Jesus who came in his body to redeem us so that we will one day be in right relationship with our redeemed bodies. It doesn't just end there. It actually ends in another metaphor of Jesus being our bridegroom. How is that for fascinating? That the God of the universe has come He created us in this beautiful way. We have fallen greatly. Jesus has come, and at the end, he is all of our bridegrooms, which makes all of us brides. And you know what the weird thing is? In heaven, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. Now, we have our bodies. You did not hear me say we do not have our bodies, and bodies don't matter. Bodies absolutely matter, and he will redeem them fully. I'm going to be 6'2". 189, 185, or something like that. <clears throat> and I won't trip over things either. Um, um, yeah. And yet, he says the end of this, amidst all of our questions and our answers and, and trying to figure it out and what love looks like in this place, he says, I will be your bridegroom. And the whole end of this thing is that I will celebrate with you on a wedding day. And that's where the real meaning of what marriage is, actually. Everything else is in comparison to that reality, the true wedding, that all of our marriages, all of our sexuality, all our issues of gender fall under and are enlightened by, gain meaning from. And that is really, really, really good news in a confusing and difficult age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you have given us your word. Help, it, help us love it. Help us help love the beauty with which you made us, in which you made us. Um, help, our, help us help our neighbors love their bodies. Keep us from any harm to other people's bodies. Make us humble and, and help us get used to the idea that we are all brides to you. In your name we pray. Amen.